Talk Security. I'm Griffin Kamen, a junior political science major and a member of the NDISC certificate program. Today I will be speaking with Chris Hoff. Uh, Hoff is Theology and Peace Studies here at Notre Dame. He earned his BA in Theology and Sociology from Eastern University and a Master's in Theology from Villanova. Leaving academia, he founded the Camden Community House following the tradition of the Catholic activist Dorothy Day and her Catholic worker houses. After 10 years of this work and two books, Professor Ha has returned to academia, writing his dissertation on the works of French scholar René Girard. So, uh, Chris, you recently took a very interesting trip to Rome. Yes. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Glad to share. So, the Kroc Institute here and the Nanovic all have some background connections with the Vatican. Uh, Jerry Powers here at Notre Dame. He actually helped write the 1983 uh, Bishop's Encyclical here regarding the positions of war and nukes uh, in the United States. And so Powers actually was able to um, build a relationship with uh, the Vatican concerni concerning their post-July um, big UN ban on nukes movement, and, and the Vatican wants to keep that going. And so in conjunction with um, the Vatican, Powers was able to bring some of us students and some professors from Georgetown and others out to um, a conference that included um, the Deputy Secretary from NATO, who was one of, I think, the most chief representatives from the, the nuclear powers and deterrence powers, and representatives from the UN, like the UN uh, High Ambassador of Disarmament, I believe was her title. That was uh, Nakamitsu. And, um, and then many others, like especially many Nobel laureates, like the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, um, Beatrice Finn, she was there. So anyway, uh, it was a two-day conference. And um, I mean, the sort of fun part of all of it in the sense of just um, an existential moment was to be able to meet the Pope, but more importantly in terms of where this fit uh, within the global scene concerned really that UN uh, vote that I mentioned in July, which was 122 nations moving to abolish nuclear weapons. And, um, and the nuclear powers boycotted that and said we're not a part of it. So the real beating heartbeat or the real uh, crucial tension in this conference was between the representative of NATO and then basically all of the Nobel laureates and UN nations um, otherwise saying, well, we've got a disagreement here. <laughs> you know, let's talk about it. And they're trying to just keep the ball rolling. This is sort of agenda setting type conversation. So I was very pleased to be there, even though I'm not necessarily an expert <laughs> in uh, nuclear disarmament issues. <coughs> so I suppose uh, that's fascinating that we have that movement of the, the nuclear powers and the non-nuclear powers mm -hmm. within the United Nations. Um, but I guess I, I want to focus on the role of the Catholic Church here yes. as kind of a, an institution, a non-state actor. Uh -huh. um, what role do you think that, that church, right, mm -hmm. uh, has in this process, um, yeah. and honestly in the world writ large. Sure. Well, one interesting example that I didn't even know was that Pope Francis had actually been um, a catalyst in U.S.-Cuba relations that helped lift uh, the embargo there for so long. Um, so the 
the Vatican actually is sort of this interesting little tiny plot of land, you know, just like a micro city that is a country that has an actual ambassador to the UN. It's kind of like a country, even though there's something in terms of its physical apparatus that is like a joke in worldly terms, so to speak. But what they do represent is an institutional uh, historical memory that is usually codified in papal encyclicals or papal pronouncements that sort of represents something of a moral voice that we might tend to forget in, um, in our escalations. And in, in once we get further and further into our conflicts, we can sometimes lose something of a historical or global perspective and because we just get caught up in our conflicts themselves. So, I mean, I find it to be very bland to say well, the Catholic Church represents a moral voice, but that's still very true. I mean, um, it wasn't just the Pope who at this meeting condemned the possession of nukes. He did it in concert with many other nations around the world, the global majority, really. So, um, so they are, like, in a way, um, not just a depoliticized entity in that they just want to offer a hallmark spirituality for people to believe in, um, but they aren't exactly like a sort of, you know, considerable power, as it were. But they have a, a power that is, is something of a, a grander type power, which is a sort of transtemporal awareness um, in being able to call us out in the midst of our conflicts. So yeah, so Cuba would just be like a very proximate example of how a sort of papal intervention can help catalyze it a bit. Um, right now, I don't think, uh, you know, with President Trump at the helm, he's necessarily really keenly interested in the Pope's position right now, you know, <laughs> just to speak in terms of uh, you know, big executive heads. But nonetheless, it's not just about um, leaders. It's about creating global um, stigmatizations and, and movements of people uh, drawing from a, a wellspring of, of what we know is right. So that's one way to put it. <coughs> I, uh, I'm reminded of the Stalin quote, which mm -hmm. may or may not have been said, but how many divisions does the Pope have? Okay. Um, <coughs> just kind of as a, an amusing contrast. But um, you've mentioned uh, in some of your writing about uh, what happened at that conference. Yeah. Um, uh, kind of redef redefinition of realism. Yes. Right? That, uh, that realist critique, well, the Pope doesn't have any temporal power. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if you could talk about that redefinition. Right. right. Well, the... In the United States, one of the most famous proximate voices for us in terms of redefining realism came through Martin Luther King Jr., which was his promotion of a type of nonviolence that was very serious about what is effective and what could make long-lasting uh, change. So this was something of a change from what you might consider like more anarchist styled uh, pacifism or a sort of tragic pacifism or a sort of Tolstoyan pacifism that you know, it could be based on a type of idealism that people are nicer than, you know, once you get to know them. Or if we all just, you know, calm down, we wouldn't be in such, um, you know, bad shape. No, it, it's, it's a more realistic, um, strategic, tactical question about 
loving enemies needs to be considered um, perhaps more effective at um, dealing with our problems. And not just what is more effective, but what we've now considered our realistic solutions are increasingly ineffective. So that's the sort of two sides of the coin here. Um, King Jr. was excellent at trying to talk about tactical, strategic um, you know, effectiveness of nonviolence or simply trying to think outside the box of just competing violences. And, and he also emphasized very strongly the, the way in which violence doesn't work. And maybe to look in a larger time frame, we have to ask, is it possible we exist in a larger time frame in which violence is becoming increasingly ineffective because of the way global culture is working? We're becoming more and more familiar with and capable of seeing across the globe, seeing across time. I mean, our minds are expanding, and now we can sort of see through um, the falsehoods of certain people's beliefs in violence. I mean, all of us look at Nazi Germany and say, how could they have fallen for that? You know, um, but now it's, we're capable of, of detecting the ways in which people um, are faulty in their thoughts that violence will solve. So, so in a way, regarding the Nukes Conference, both Bishop McElroy from San Diego and the Pope Nakamitsu with the United Nations, they were all talking about an important realist question, which is nukes are increasingly destabilizing us. They are making things worse. They aren't supplying the um, mutual assured destruction even. They're not supplying um, a type of standoff relative stability. They are sort of compounding uh, diplomatic crises. They are actually worsening diplomatic affairs. So what that's trying to say is, let's do the math. Let's think long term. Is this actually working? And so in the brief article I wrote for The Observer, there was a sense of, we are building on sand now. And if somebody jumps in and says, well, we've got to build, so we've got to build fast or something, and it's, we just, we're going to have to build the cheap way, as it were, on sand. And to me, a realist voice says, no, the truly difficult and hard path is to dig deep, do the diplomatic work, do all of the difficult legal uh, questions of how are we going to move to, towards disarmament through mutual accountability systems. That hard work, it's very challenging, but it is far more um, serious and realistic than presuming that you know, if we just keep pouring trillions of dollars into mutually assured destruction in this sort of new arms race, that that will promote security. So I don't know, that's just one general way of saying <coughs> what's at issue here is what truly provides security. And um, I would say the higher realism says, let's, let's step back and re-ask that question. <coughs> Going back to uh, what you were saying about kind of the uh, decreasing effectiveness mm -hmm. of violence. Yeah. Um, I, I just wonder, it seems as though violence can uh, very quickly and very certainly accomplish certain objectives, right? Sure, um, maybe. Whereas, you know, grand strategic goals perhaps require mm -hmm. a little bit more. I just wonder if there's a space for violence, even in this higher realism, right? Uh, maybe, you know, the just war theory mm -hmm. um, type of tradition that sometimes... Right. I just wonder if that's something right. that we can get rid of. Right. Well, I mean, one of the things that is so interesting about 
just war theory is how little it's actually applied. It's often treated in practice more like a justifying war theory. So a lot of times when I'm talking to somebody who might be sort of preferring deterrence or preferring just war theory, my question is, are you actually applying that concept? So right now, I think people should be asking, if we were to hold our president to even just the reasonable standards of what's the, what's the basic deterrence logic or what's basic just war theory logic, well, it certainly doesn't involve sort of um, calling off your secretary of state to pursue diplomacy with Korea. It doesn't involve hawkish sort of um, fire and fury kind of speech. All of those violate just ad bellum criteria, which is war has to be seen as this total last resort in front of which we are supposed to throw everything, the whole kitchen sink, at um, preventing that. So, so in a way, I want to say, yeah, you know, you can forget my pacifism for a, question, for a moment. Go with your just war theory and ask what would be the proactive, um, rigorous methods to uh, approach politics that treats war as a last resort. And everything about where we're at right now is saying, you know, pardon my bluntness, but we should be fervently critiquing the anti-diplomatic drawdown of the State Department and its diplomatic efforts by the Trump administration. I, we should just name that explicitly and say that is not coherent with just war theory. So in a way, yes, I want to say, oh yeah, we could maybe speak about a last resort occasion. But my point is nobody even takes seriously everything prior to that resort. You know, or in 2003, virtually everybody across the globe, every Christian denomination except Southern Baptists, declared the war in Iraq an unjust war. But you, we sent our people there. Why did we do that? Um, so the question really would be, yeah, okay, if you want to go with just war theory, use it. Don't go to an unjust war. Um, and then when the, the case comes for a truly just war, then we can maybe take that more seriously. <coughs> yes, that makes me think of um, something we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. what's, the, what's the unit of analysis here? Are, yeah. are we talking about how states make their decisions or religious institutions or individuals? Or mm -hmm. like, can you talk about of the interplay between um, all of this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very rare for the church because it's become so, in a way, depoliticized in one sense and, and sort of desiccated of having any sort of body to it that it's incapable of really uh, disciplining its members. You know, that's one of the interesting things that William Kavanaugh in his book Torturing Eucharist talks about. He says, is the church capable of, you know, excommunicating a torturer or somebody that, you know, is practicing on the individual level their Catholic faith but is actually participating in structures of supreme injustice? So, I don't know. I mean, I think individual Catholics will have to examine their consciences before the proclamations of the Pope recently and say, he just said we're the bad guys now in, in a way. You know, the, the majority of the nations are moving towards what uh, he and so many others are saying is a more moral po policy, insane policy, and all of us are on the other side, both with our tax dollars, 
and our personal um, participation in the United States nuclear power. And, um, but some of us are also participating directly in the military. People of faith need to ask that for themselves, but they also need to ask that in relationship to how they are a part of other bodies, not just the United States body and its political body, but they're a part of the church. And one of my chief arguments as a theologian is that when you call Jesus your Lord and Savior, you have put a prior political allegiance to Jesus Christ. Um, you are, at best, second in American. You are a, a Christian first. Uh, you know, your faith in Jesus Christ has to command your allegiance. So, that I would say there's just <clears throat> interlocking levels of analysis: the individual, the church, and the state, um, even if they might be distinct. That um, that reminds me a lot of. Uh, the, uh, maybe from the Strategic Futures Group or the CIA, okay. in a strictly secular way, came, uh, came here and was discussing potential futures. And one of the things okay. that she said was, um, you know, political space will become more complex. Right? The state, uh, it looks like, is slowly losing that monopoly on political power. And that sounds mm. like exactly what you're describing there, that um, p political power of, uh, or repolitical, Repoliticization mm -hmm. of the church, as it were. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, moving on, um, but uh, staying on the same kind of subject, uh, I just wonder how you see, in some specific examples, um, the church, the individual, and I guess religion more broadly, affecting the actions of whether that's non-state actors or state actors mm -hmm. um, in the world. Um, I, I wonder about kind of Europe and some of the more secularized states. Yeah. Um, yeah, what are, your, what are your thoughts on that? You know, religion is such a nasty, difficult word to properly use because it's hard to get into the laicite, you know, laicism of, of France when I feel like there's so many other elephants in the room with, um, with how religion is being used um, or not used. Um, if you'll allow me to kind of talk a little bit more of what just happened yesterday regarding a very religious symbol in the United States, which is Israel. Um, what's astonishing there is, is the way so often it feels like religion can actually be used as something of a, this sort of shield or some sort of like cloak for other issues, um, whether it be geopolitical strategy or lots of money-making in regards to, you know, arms trade. Um, and then religion is sort of used as this sort of con man cover to sort of sacralize the symbols, you know, and say, well, this is the eternal nation, you know, Israel. Um, and it's one of, I mean, one of my great laments is that people in the United States have not, so far as I can tell, been capable of identifying religion when it's being used as a sacralization of prior political decisions. They've already made sort of gestures and movements uh, in their political frame, and then they get the sort of religious wand to cover it. Um, so that's one of the layers in which we should talk about religion, the way in which it's disingenuously used to justify um, a political situation. Um, 
And then other more predictable ways, too, are the ways by which, you know, we talked about the Pope, i.e. you've got an institution that promotes morals or something like that. That's, that's fine, too. Um, but some of the other layers that I think are very profound have to do with the way by which religion can help actually um, imbue an astonishingly um, patient and nonviolent procedure. And that would maybe be seen, you know, as I've noted already in Martin Luther King Jr., but also among the Palestinians, the, the bits that I've read on nonviolent movements there, even though they have uh, strong violent wings that have tried to resist the Israeli occupation and their extrajudicial annexation, annexations of land, many Palestinians are, I think, drawing from a wellspring of a nonviolent religious tradition in their actions there. And without a doubt, we need to say that those are healthy forms of religion, you know, to air quote it. This, that's a different type of religion than simply a con man sort of wanting to, you know, draw upon like culture war things and, and sort of talk about the, um, you know, the sacredness of, of, you know, eternal Israel or getting Christ back into Christmas or things like that. Those are kind of the most obscene forms of religion, whereas the most, I think, beatific form, forms of vision involve something of a almost breathtaking capacity for patience and nonviolence in the face of, of entrenched um, oppression. Maybe that's one way of putting it. I mean, I, I think there's another layer to this that is very rarely talked about, which is that Christianity has spread in many ways throughout the world in a secularized form. And much of um, the globalizing world is globalizing Western civilization. And Western civilization has inside of it a virus, which according to the theorist that you've noted I work on, Rene Girard, he sees that virus as Christianity and really the whole Bible as having a, um, well, it doesn't strike us now, but in terms of the, the arc of human history, the Bible he sees as the first real breakthrough in, in terms of sensitivity to victims and the scapegoating patterns of society. And that awareness uh, and sensitivity to victimization, he says, is now sort of in Western civilization as a virus. And wherever it spreads, even if Western civ spreads in a totally secularized form, it will still spread that victim awareness, even with a secular face on it. Um, and so much of the sensitivity to victims that um, exists in the United States in different forms, you know, some of which is political correctness and so forth, is around the world in different ways. And secularism that in France that's trying to defend a certain type of neutral, um, pseudo-neutral position that doesn't uh, bias any... Um, certain people over and against others in a way is sort of a uh, derivative off of the Christian sensitivity to victims, at least in Girard's mimetic theory. So, so that's, that's a whole conversation about the way by which religion can actually, in, even in some of its best forms, it can go subterranean and it can sort of get into the drinking water as it were and even in its secular form will still invade us. And, and yet, 
I would say the deepest layer here is an awareness how the increasing sensitivity to victims or uh, siding with victims, even if it has a religious component and it ultimately might stem from the symbol of the passion of Christ, it is a very dangerous virus because it can make us now so um, aware of persecution that now we are on the hunt for persecutors, which can escalate. You know, we just want to scapegoat the scapegoaters and persecute the persecutors. Um, that's one of the deepest, dangerous layers of religion um, because of its truth. You know, the awareness of victimization is, is a truth, and it can, it can bleed out into the whole world. And when it's not accompanied by a type of radical um, forgiveness that Jesus, you know, presented us in the Sermon on the Mount, or a radical love of enemies, Christianity then becomes very dangerous. You know, when, it, when not coupled with that type of mercy and forgiveness. Well, that leaves me with a lot to think about. Um, I think we've about reached our time. Okay, um, great. Thank you very much for joining us. Yes, thank you. Um, and to all the audience members, uh, join us next week for another, or join us next time for another edition of Students Talk Security. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash n-d-i-s-c forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag n-d underscore i-s-c. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.